Well, good morning. I want to thank our praise team for their uh, ministry and music this morning. And what an appropriate song to sing prior to looking at God's Word, and especially what we're going to learn today from Psalm 67. However, I'd like for you to turn to Romans chapter 1 to begin today. Romans chapter 1. This past Monday, on the 4th of July, if my math is right, our nation celebrated its 246th birthday. According to worldometers.com, the United States of America is one of 195 sovereign, self-governing countries in the world. And of those 195 countries, there is absolutely nowhere that I would rather live than right here in America. I love our country, and I pray for our country, and I pray for the salvation of the leaders of our country, and I pray that righteousness will prevail in our land, and I participate to the degree I can by faithfully voting in all of our local and national elections, and yet, like you, I am absolutely heartbroken over the moral decline in our country. Under the guise of progress, our nation has turned its back on God. In many ways, we are living in a post-Christian world, a Romans 1 society where God has turned our country and the countries of the world over to the consequences of their sin. We just spent several months going through the minor prophets, and over and over and over again, we saw God pouring out his wrath on nations that dishonored him. His wrath was manifested in direct punishment in physical ways. But it appears that God, in his design in the New Testament era, as it relates to his wrath, is different. It appears that he allows people and countries to experience the natural consequences of their sin. In other words, Romans 1 seems to indicate that God is pouring out his wrath today by allowing people and nations to have exactly what they want. I want us to see this uh, here as we begin today. So Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, and let's look at the description of what the Apostle Paul is sharing here and I think that it's rather evident that our country fits into this description. And not just our country, but the countries of the world. Look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes... His eternal power and divine nature have clearly been seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. And so essentially, no man has any excuse. God has implanted in the heart of everyone that he's created, that he exists, and he has given us creation for us to know that he exists. It's not enough to save, but it's certainly enough to condemn. And he says in verse 21, for even though they knew God, so the assumption is that everyone knows God. Everyone knows that God exists. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. 
And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, and we see this here in the text three times, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the, of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips and slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and, all they, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Turn with me back to Psalm 67. And this psalm that we'll be examining today is an appeal to the nations. And so this is where nations are at. <laughs> this is where nations are at. This is where nations have been in the Roman 1 model here. I love this psalm, Psalm 67, but the author is unknown. Uh, the author, though, is, is the kind of guy that I think that we'd like to hang out with because he, he seems to be such an encourager and a positive guy, a guy who is obviously thankful for all that God has done for him, and he desires the same for others. And I think that's a big part of the Christian life. As we absorb the truths of God's word, as we take them into our hearts, we want other people to know of the glories of Christ. We're going to have a baptism, a baptismal service next Sunday, and we have a number of folks that are going to give public testimony to their faith in Jesus Christ. Some who were saved sitting right here, amongst us as they contemplated the word of God and they put it into their heart and God convicted them of their sin and they trusted in Christ as their savior. It's all about the grace that we sang about earlier. This is an appeal to the nations. This man who wrote this book or this chapter in this book, he writes what is referred to as one of the forgotten psalms. Martin Luther, who wrote a lengthy five-volume commentary on the book of Psalms, didn't even include Psalm 67 in his commentary in that huge work. And that, my friends, is, in my estimation, a shame because this is a great psalm, and one that I think we need to absorb today, especially in this Romans 1 culture that we live in. And so as I mentioned last week, the book of Psalms is a collection of prayers and poems and hymns 
that are intended to focus our attention upon God and praise and adoration. And parts of the book of Psalms were actually used as a hymnal in the worship services of ancient Israel. The Psalms were written by numerous different authors over a 900-year period of time from the time of Moses all the way through the post-exilic period. And so what we'll consider today is a reminder that all people and all nations have an obligation to bow to Creator God, the giver of both spiritual and physical life. As we look at this today, I I think there are four main sections here, and each section is a specific plea from the psalmist. And so a plea is a, a passionate and direct request. There's all kinds of things that would fit into this category. When our grandkids come over to our house, uh, they like to drink coffee, and I feel like grandparents like us and others uh, are a little bit of a corrupting factor as it relates to these kinds of things. I remember when I was a little kid, my grandmother would give me coffee when I'd go over to her house, and I just loved going to grandma's house because I would get coffee. And so I'd walk in the door, and the first thing I would say is, Grandma, can I have some coffee? And it would be a a passionate and direct plea for this brown stuff that doesn't taste really that great unless you put some creamer in it. And the same with our grandkids. They come to our house, and the first thing they ask is, can we have gum? Can we have gum? Can we have candy? Can we have coffee? And on we go. On a more serious note, when we think about this, this idea of a plea, It's a passionate and direct request along the lines in a spiritual fashion that Moses pled with the Jewish people to turn from their sin. And this is the same with all of the prophets. Stop going down the path you're going and turn back to God. Perhaps the greatest plea in the New Testament is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and it's a plea for sinners to turn to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Folks, we are beggars. (laughs) I want us to think of this just a little bit here as we think about the concept of pleading with people, pleading with God. We are to plead with others to be reconciled to God. We are to beg them to see the truth of God the way that God intends for them to see it. We we are to beg them to see the glories of Jesus Christ who came to the earth to die in the place of sinners. We are to plead with people to turn from their sin passionately. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. What do ambassadors do? They, they plead with people. They appeal to people. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And this was at the heart of what the prophets did. This was pre-Jesus, but they're begging with them. Turn back to God. We saw it when we went through the minor prophets. Be reconciled to God. Don't you know what God has done for you? Don't you know what he's done for the nation of Israel? Turn back to him. It's a passionate appeal. It's a plea. And we see four of these here in the text today. And the first one we find in verse 1, 
And it's the psalmist's plea for God to bestow his favor on Israel. Look at verse 1. God be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. Selah. God be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. Selah. Israel is God's chosen people. Deuteronomy 7, 6 says, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all of the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Why did God choose Israel? Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever asked that question? Why is it that God chose Israel? Of all the nations, of all the peoples on the face of the earth, why would he choose the nation of Israel? Well, it's because that Jesus, the Messiah, had to come from some nation or some people. And so God chose Israel. And as we take a look at God's favor on Israel, we see the psalmist's plea manifested here in three specific calls. First, we see a call for God to be gracious. And some of your translations may have the word merciful here. And while grace and mercy are similar, there is a difference between the two. Grace is God giving us that which we do not deserve. And mercy is God not giving us that which we do deserve. And I think graciousness is more in view here than mercy, although he is both gracious and merciful. The psalmist recognizes that without God's grace, we are doomed. Without God's grace, we are doomed. Spurgeon said, the best saints and the worst sinners may unite in this petition. Why? Because we all need grace. We all need grace. This is why we marvel at the grace of God. This is why many of the songs that we sing here at Grace Life Church are about the grace of God, the undeserved merit of God. This is why we named the church Grace Life Church. Because of the undeserved merit and favor of God on our lives. And we want to live the grace life. We want to live a life of grace. Taking in the grace of God and living it out in our lives. And so we are indeed those who are recipients of God's grace. We all need God's grace. Because we are sinners. We are undeserving of his grace. Grace is a gift. One of the greatest verses, two verses in all the Bible, are found in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, which says that that God's saving grace is amazing. It says here, For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not according to works, so that no one may boast. So you see it here, that grace is a gift. God's grace is a gift that he has given to us, sovereignly bestowed upon us through faith. It's not of ourselves. We can't earn it. We can't earn grace. Grace is freely given by God to us, undeserving sinners. But not only are we saved by grace, but we're daily sustained by God's grace. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. 
Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Now, when the psalmist says here, may God be gracious to us, he's referring specifically to the nation of Israel. Now, moving on, there's also a call here for God to bless them, for God to bless them. The words of verse 1, all of the words of verse 1, come from Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26, where the high priest of Israel would pronounce a special blessing on the people when they were acting in obedience to the Lord. But what a reminder for us. What a reminder. Even though this is in the context of the nation of Israel, he's talking to all the nations, as we'll see. But what a reminder to us that without the grace of God, there is no hope. We have no hope. We have no hope. To bless here means to receive the favor of God. To receive the favor of God. It's sort of the action part of God's grace. God's blessing is essential for us to live a victorious Christian life. But at the heart of of, of all of this here in verse 1, the psalmist is reminding the nation of Israel of God's original promise to them as he spoke to Abraham way back in the beginning in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. We know this as the Abrahamic covenant. Verse 1 of of Genesis 12 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, you remember his name was Abram, they changed it to Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. And, your, and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all of the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, we know about the Abrahamic covenant, right? It was an unconditional covenant in the sense that it was not a bilateral agreement. It wasn't contingent upon the people of Israel. God said, I'm going to do this through you, Abraham, as the father of the nation of Israel. I'm going to do something special with you. So he enters into this covenant. And you remember back in the Old Testament era, a lot of times when there was a covenant, they would ratify the covenant by take this is kind of gross, but they would take an animal and they would split it in half And both of the parties would walk through the center of the carcass of the animal. And that would be a sign that this covenant has been ratified. Now, today, in a covenant sort of a situation in the States or in other countries, we would both sign on the dotted line, right? But back in the day, they would literally have a ceremony where they would walk through this split carcass. Well, the interesting thing about this and why we know it's an unconditional covenant is because the only one to pass through the carcass was the Spirit of God. A deep sleep fell upon Abraham, and the Spirit of God walked through the carcass, went through the carcass, and so this is a sign that it's an unconditional, unilateral covenant that God has made with his people Israel, not dependent upon what Israel would do. And so there are conditional covenants and there are unconditional covenants. And this is an unconditional covenant. And why, one of the reasons why we believe that there is a future for Israel. Because there's a land promise that's associated with the Abrahamic covenant. 
And that will be fulfilled, we believe, in the millennial kingdom as Jesus comes back at the second coming and sets up his kingdom and rules over the earth for a thousand years. But there are three distinct promises in the Abrahamic covenant. Land, seed, and blessing. So it's an easy thing to remember. Land, seed, and blessing. And we see all about the blessing here in this text. He says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and in in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So not only does God bestow his blessing upon Israel, but he says that Israel will then be a blessing to other nations. So this is very interesting here. All of this from verse 1. Third, we find there's a call for God's face to shine upon them. I, I love this picture here. and I think, um, I think we can all relate to it. This refers to the loving delight of a father. The loving delight of a father. When I was a kid, I, I wanted to please my dad in the worst way. I wanted him to be proud of me. And I could always tell when that would happen because it would show on his face. And it almost didn't matter to me if others weren't proud of me because if my dad was pleased with me, that's all that seemed to matter. And I think that's in view here. The psalmist is speaking here of the happy face of God. It's the ultimate in his approval of us as his children. And when we think of that, we think of God's approval You know, God has done all of this for us. He's asked us to be obedient. He's asked us to be loyal and faithful to him. He's asked us to follow after his statutes and his commandments. He's given us certain responsibilities, and so we're supposed to fulfill them. We're not to do these things, but we're to do these things. And God has laid it all out for us. And when we are obedient and our hearts are right before God, that's when God's face shines upon us, the happy face of God. We don't live for the applause or the approval of men. We live for the delight of God. Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? And isn't that a good question? And I think about this all the time. If God is for us, then who can be against us? Who can stand against us? Can other evil people or evil nations stand against us? If God is for us, then then who can stand against us? Who can be against us? Spurgeon said these three petitions include all that we need now or hereafter. Notice here that at the end of verse 1 and at the end of verse 4, they both end with the word selah. You see that? So selah is used 74 times in the Old Testament, and it's used so that there's a there's a pause. It means to pause or to rest. It's, it's used as a pause or a rest to reflect on what has been given. That's the whole idea of selah. It's a pause or a rest. Well, if we move on here in verse 2, uh, we find the psalmist's plea that salvation would come to all of the nations. Look at verse 2. That your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all the nations. So the reason that the psalmist asked for God's blessing, it's not for selfish reasons. 
And oftentimes we fall into that trap, don't we? God, bless me, bless me, bless me, bless me. It's all about me. It's all about me. Bless me. No. The reason here that we find that the psalmist asks God for his blessing is not for selfish reason, but so that God's way of salvation will be known throughout the earth. Remember the big appeal in 2 Corinthians 5. Not just for Israel here, notice. It's all the nations. Jesus said in John 14 and verse 6 that I am the way, the truth, and the light. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, there's a right way and a wrong way. There's a right way and a wrong way. And I love the description of Christians in Acts chapter 9 and verse 2. Have you read it recently? Christians are described there as those who are following the way. Following the way. Following the right way. Following the way of Christ. Following the way of salvation that God has given to those who would trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. The Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, it's all about calling people to follow the way of Jesus. So you remember the setting here. This is at the end. Uh, Jesus had gone to the cross. He was on the earth. He's ready to ascend up into heaven. He was resurrected from the dead on the earth for 40 days, appeared to so many different people. But he says to his disciples, final words, he says, go therefore, literally, in your going, as you go, Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to follow all that I commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so Jesus' command there to them was to make disciples. Make disciples. He looked them in the eye in a glorified body and said, go and make disciples. But there are three participles there in Matthew 28, 19, and 20 that help us to better understand the command, which is to make disciples. Those three participles are going, baptizing, and teaching. So this was Jesus' desire for his disciples, and this should be our desire as well. Israel was the chosen people of God, but the psalmist includes all the nations here too, and so he's saying that everyone needs salvation right? What did we say last week? What is the one thing that we all have in common? We are sinners in need of the grace of God, in need of salvation. So everyone needs salvation, not just the Jews, not just the people of Israel, not just the chosen people that God has selected, but all people, all nations need Jesus Christ. Man, we ought to be passionate about that. We ought to be, we ought to be so driven by that. So where, where are we at in this kind of, of, of a charge or a command? What are we doing? How are we appealing to others? How are we begging people to be reconciled to God? I think that's a good question for us. Because we don't live in Africa. We don't live in Ethiopia. We don't live in Russia. We live here. We live here. So our part of fulfilling this great commission is for us to influence people with the gospel of Christ where we live and support others who want to go to Africa and Ethiopia and Russia and to help them go do that. But we're here. So are we absolved of following 
what we see here in what's called this Great Commission, where Jesus commissioned his disciples and all of those who would follow them in the future to commission them to go and do this, to be passionate about it. This was Jesus' desire for his disciples. It should be our desire as well. Thirdly, in verses 3 through 6, we find the psalmist's plea that all the nations would praise God. Look at this. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations of the earth. Selah. Look at verse 5. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its produce. God, our God, blesses us. I, I think this is a backhanded reminder of the danger of making things about ourselves. When nations become self-absorbed, trouble ensues. When people become preoccupied with themselves, trouble always ensues. And, and really, just to make the point, there's no such thing as a Christian nation. It's really a misnomer right? Nations aren't Christian. People are Christians. Just like God chose Israel, the nation of Israel, the people are individually responsible to turn to Messiah. Not everyone in Israel or of Jewish heritage is going to heaven. And so in the same way in the United States where, yes, in some of our founding documents, the Lord's name was mentioned, and I'm grateful for that, we have on our currency, in God we trust. We, we sing certain songs and we recite certain pledges. And God's name is mentioned in those. And I'm grateful for that. Certainly grateful for that. But this is a reminder that people need Christ. Right? And as the people come to Christ and there's revival and there's excitement about Christ and there's this appeal to everyone within the nation, then we see God doing the work in the heart of a nation. But nations aren't Christian, people are Christian. So when the psalmist speaks of the nations, he's really speaking about those who make up or comprise a nation. And that's what he means here when he says in verse 3, let the peoples praise you. Let the peoples praise you. Plural. Let all the peoples praise you. Jew and Gentile alike is what he's referring to here. God has created us all, and we're all accountable to him. So when the psalmist says in verse 4 that the Lord will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth, this, I believe, is another allusion to the coming millennial kingdom of Christ that's spoken of in Revelation chapter 20. We live in a world where professional athletes are venerated, right? Actors, politicians, musicians, all receive praise. But what about God? This is shocking. We venerate people who are sinners, and we push God who is sinless aside. That's what our nation's done, and that's what the other nations of the world have done. They pushed God aside to venerate and to honor and to praise people. Go back to Romans 1. They worship the creature rather than the creator. You see the problem. 
we need to be leading the charge, leading the way in praise of Almighty God. I, I love the psalmist's emphasis here on the praise of God. While we're in Psalms, let's turn over to Psalm 150. This is one of my favorite Psalms. And because I'm reading it now, I'm not going to probably choose this for preaching on it, but I absolutely love this. You want to talk about repetition? You want to try to talk about trying to drive a point home? <laughs> Look at Psalm 150. You see this? How does he begin? Let's say it together. Praise the Lord. He goes on to say, praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty expanse. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with harp and lyre. Praise him with tambourine and dancing. Praise him with stringed instruments and flute. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Everything that has breath shall praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You see the emphasis. Kathy says I can be very repetitive at times. I say the same things often. I've preached to you for 11 years. You know I'm repetitive. This is repetitive. This is repetitive. Why? Because it's, it's, it's the intent of the author of Psalm 150 for us to know that it is our charge to praise the Lord wherever we're at, in any way we can, to bring praise and honor to him. When we're thinking about praising God, it carries the idea that we're to heap the glory and the credit for all things onto God. To praise God means to exalt God. To praise God means to honor God. To praise God means to magnify his name. It is the height of worship the psalmist reminds us in verse 6 that God is the source of the abundant produce of the earth. It's part of his blessing. And for that, he deserves praise. And that praise is often manifested, it says here, in gladness and joyful singing. It's one of the reasons why we sing here at the church, to magnify and, 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 and send our praise to God. You see, Worship isn't about us. And you've heard me say this many times. Some of you have maybe not heard me say it, but it's disturbing to me when advertisements for churches lead with come and experience the worship. Come to our church and experience the worship. Worship is not about us, something that we experience. Worship is vertical. It's praising God and honoring God and exalting God and magnifying God. The psalmist reminds us here in verse 6 about this abundant produce of the earth. It's a reminder that everything that we have is a blessing from God. I think we take it for granted. We have a field behind our house. It is absolutely full of corn. You know that old saying about knee-high by the 4th of July? This, the corn behind our house is taller than me. 
taller than, taller than me. It's, it's amazing to think about how much and how many people are going to be fed by that field behind my house. That's all a blessing from God. All of it is a blessing from God. It isn't that the farmers did it right, they planted it at the right time, they, 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 they hoped that it would get water. God does all that. You see, God does all that. God is the one that orchestrates blessing. So we're to heap all of the credit and the glory for all things onto him. And then we finish this out here in verse 7, and we find the psalmist's plea that all the nations would fear the Lord. All the nations would fear the Lord. Look at verse 7. God blesses us, and indeed he does, right? Think about all the blessings that God has brought your way. You know, honestly, and I'm just going to say it, uh, we, can, we can be over here, and we can say, oh, woe is me. It's the Eeyore mentality, right? The Winnie the Pooh show, you remember that? Eeyore, oh, he was always down in the dumps and all that kind of thing. That's not the life of the Christian. What's the life of the Christian is the joy of the Lord Rejoicing in who he is. Worshiping and praising him. And it's all because of this admonition in Scripture that we are to fear the Lord. What does that mean? We're to be in awe of God. Awe of God. Look, we can, we can point out all kinds of things over here, but really? Is that where we want to live? Over here? Or do we want to live over here? in the joy of the Lord, rejoicing of all the blessings. You see, this is the problem and the self-absorption of people and nations. They want to live over here because they don't know God. But those of us who know God, this is where we want to live. This is where we should live. This should be something that people see in us, the hope of Christ in us this amazing hope of glory. People should see that in us. And so verse 7 begins here with one final reminder that the Lord blesses us. It's he who blesses the nations. It's he who blesses the peoples of the nations. And if folks just lived in the fear of the Lord, think about the difference that it would make in the world. Think about the difference it would make in the church. If the world revered God and held him in honor, if the peoples of the world were in awe of God for who he is and what he has done, think about the difference that would be made upon this earth. And that's what Psalm 33 and verse 8 says. It says, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why? Because as Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Psalm 111 and verse 10 says it this way, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have good understanding. His praise endures forever. Isn't that a blessed promise? Proverbs 8.13 says, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil are perverted speech I hate. Proverbs 3, 7, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. Psalm 103 and verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. King Solomon, at the end of his life, what a mess that was. 
This guy was supposed to be the wisest man on the earth. And how did he live his life? The majority of his life was spent pursuing the pleasures that the world has to offer. He finally gets it at the end, Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13. The end of the matter is this. After all has been heard, he says, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. It isn't hard. It's not hard. Fear God. Live in the fear of who he is, an awe, respect, reverence for God, his word, what he says, what he desires. And he will bless you. Look at this. And when we do fear the Lord, the psalmist reminds us that the Lord blesses us and provides for us. Psalm 34 and verse 9. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. He blesses those who fear him. And those who fear him have no lack. And then we find in Psalm 115 and verse 11 that not only does the Lord provide for those who fear Him, He places His hand of protection upon them. If God is for us, who can be against us? Psalm 115 and verse 11 says, You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. I wrote this down 20-some years ago. I was out at the Shepherds Conference. John MacArthur was preaching. It's one of the first times I'd been out there. I've been out there a bunch, and I absolutely love that conference. It's the Cadillac of all uh, Bible conferences, especially for those in leadership in the church. But he said this one time. I wrote it down in my Bible. He says, you cannot be faithful and popular, so take your pick. Think about it. You cannot be faithful and popular So take your pick. And I've thought a lot about that quote over the life of my own ministry. Not all that interested in popularity, but I am interested in being faithful. Folks, we need to live in the fear of the Lord and not in the fear of man. God is God, and we are not. And this is why we need the salvation that God provides through the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior from sin, this is the day. This is the day that you can turn to Him in forgiveness, repentance from sin, and He will save you. It's a promise. He has promised to save those who turn to Him in repentance and faith. And so if you're here today and you need Christ, please turn to Him. I beg you. I appeal to you today. Those of us who do know Christ, which, where are we at? Where are we at? Where are we at with the Lord? This is an appeal to the nations, but the nations are made up of people. So where are we at with God? Is our life a praise offering to God? Do we desire to worship Him with our lives? Are we begging people to come to faith in Christ? Are we appealing to people? Here recently, I think in the last 20 years, there's been this question in 
Christian circles. What's your purpose? What's your purpose? There's been books written about this. You've got to find your purpose. What's your pur- the purpose is easy. We all have the same one. We all have the same purpose. It ain't about us. It's all about him. That's our purpose. To do everything we can do to the glory of God, period. That's it. That's it. So whatever that is, that's what we're to do. Not hard. It's not hard. So we thank the Lord for his blessing, right? I mean, God has blessed our church immensely. He's blessed us in some amazing ways. We're going to hear the testimony of others next week of what God has done in their life. So we ask ourselves, where are we at? And this is something that we settle between us and God. What our desires are. That we want to serve Him. We want to honor Him. We want to worship Him. We want to do what His Word says. That's where we should be. Let's pray. Our Father, thank You this morning that we can turn our attention to an unforgot, or to a forgotten psalm. One that uh, people just pass over. Strange. Why would, would folks just pass over this psalm that calls us to all of these things? We're so grateful for all that You've done in our lives, Lord, and our church. It's all about Your grace. It's all about Your favor. You have blessed and You will continue to bless as long as we do what it is that You want us to do. And so we thank You for that. And I do pray for those who may be here today who don't know Christ as Savior, that You would convict them of their sin today and draw them to Yourself. We thank You and we do praise You today. In the name of Jesus, Amen.